As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, you know all those uh, economic recovery shape letters that everyone's talking about? Yes, W-V-U-L, lowercase v, um, the square root sign, <laughs> K. Yeah. I've seen them all. There's some really esoteric ones out there. So what do you think is the most sort of bearish out of all those shapes or letters or symbols or whatever? That's a good question. I mean, probably, I guess the L or the U, mm. something like that. I mean, anything that doesn't, isn't premised on there being some sort of snapback. Also, maybe just the I, just a straight letter down. that just never, never comes back. I suppose that's a possibility too, that people don't talk about. I'm glad you said I. So I I actually hadn't heard that many people talking about this letter. But yes, there is an I-shaped economic recovery, which is a straight line going down. So it's really not an economic recovery at all. And um, it's probably the most bearish of all the forecasts. And the person we're going to speak to today is someone who has written about that I possibility. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I'm looking forward to our talk. Today, it's someone who's uh, going to be very well known to our audience, who in the past, and I don't even know if it's rightly or wrongly, I'm not even sure where he, uh, if he always embraced the nickname, but nonetheless, uh, his uh, nickname, uh, Dr. Doom, became, uh, many people would have heard it during the last crisis. Yeah, and I think as soon as you say uh, the name Dr. Doom, everyone knows who we're going to be talking about, but it's Noriel Rubini, the chairman of Rubini Macro Associates, and uh, he he's known, well, he's known for forecasting the previous financial crisis back in 2008, but he's also known for pretty bearish prognostications, and uh, it's been very bearish of late, has it not? Things have not been great, so uh, <laughs> yes, I would say that that is a safe call. <laughs> All right. Uh, understatement of the year. OK, well, without further ado, then uh, let's bring on Nouriel Rubini. Nouriel, it's so great to have you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, great being with you today. It's a pleasure. So, Nouriel, uh, Joe and I were, were sort of joking just then, but you do have the Dr. Doom moniker. Do you feel, uh, I guess, vindicated isn't the right word uh, given current events, but do you, do you feel that you are living up to that Doom reputation? 
Well, usually I say that I'm Dr. Realist, not Dr. Doom. <laughs> and if you look at the last decades, uh, I've not been negative all the time. When there were risk-off episodes, I pointed them out. When there was economic and market recovery, I pointed that out as well. So uh, it's not as if I'm permanently a perma-bear. I think that would be a, a mischaracterization of my views. Um, so call me Dr. Realist. Something I'm curious about is, you know, we see these economist forecasts right now. They're like, oh, okay, Q2 GDP is going to plunge uh, 30%, and then maybe we'll have a small recovery in Q3, and then maybe we'll have a robust recovery in Q4, whatever it is. How do you go about the process of making a recovery forecast? How does anyone, while separating that, that recovery from the policy response? Because, of course, we got the CARES Act at the end of March, and that probably helped slow down the crash uh, somewhat. Uh, but it seems hard to make any sort of forecast about Q4 or Q1 of next year without having a view on how robust uh, the policy response from both the Fed and fiscal authorities will continue to be throughout the course of this year. Well, usually when there is a recession, it's very hard to make a forecast about the length of it and the shape of the recovery. Uh, by definition, is a change in regime and even traditional economic forecasting models essentially break down because those models don't tend to predict recessions. So once you are in a recession or a financial crisis, you have to ask yourself in a more, uh, I would say, qualitative way rather than a quantitative one, what is going to be the shape of the economic recovery? So for example, you know, I wrote a recent paper with my global economic outlook with my research colleagues, and we argued that uh, there are three scenarios. Uh, one is the, what we call the greater recession, will be more like a U-shaped recovery. Uh, second one is a downside scenario, call it a depression, L-shaped. And then there is a, a upside scenario of a V-shaped recovery. Now, markets for the last few weeks, especially U.S. equities, seem to be pricing a V-shaped recovery. In that paper, and I don't have time to go on every point of it, but we present about 14 separate factors why we believe that the recovery is going to be U-shaped rather than V-shaped. Now, th those predictions are not based on a formal econometric models because by definition, those forecasting models are useless uh, when we are in the depth of recession. But you're trying to understand what's going to be the economic dynamic of the behavior of the private sector, households and corporates, what's going to be the policy response. And of course, any prediction you make on the shape of the recovery of uh, uh, economies and markets depends on the policy response. We know a lot about the policy response, how strong it has been in the United States, uh, strong but not as strong in Europe and Japan, more constrained in emerging markets. So any economic forecast, of course, makes also predictions about the policy path, monetary policy, fiscal policy, credit policy, regulatory policy. In this case, of course, health policy, because we have to decide how fast or how slowly to reopen. And you feed that one into your essentially model in terms of predicting the shape of the recovery. So certainly the shape of the recovery is not independent from the policy response. And you can make sense of that policy response. We've, we've already front-loaded in one month, in terms of unconventional monetary fiscal policy, what it took about three years during the global financial crisis to occur. The entire toolkit of unconventional tools that the Fed created between 2007 and 2009 
have been redeployed in less than a month uh, because they were there and they were available and the Fed made the decision of, of going and front-loading it and they created even new ones. Like, for example, purchasing corporate bonds is something that the Fed did not do during the global financial crisis. And not only they've started to purchase a high-grade investment grade, but they've also now gone into willingness to purchase high yield, something in my view is very risky, but changes completely, for example, the dynamic of the recovery of uh, spread products, including corporate bonds, high grade and high yield. I want to dig into the central bank response, but before we do, if we zoom in on the U.S. uh, and talk about your forecast, which is this U-shaped recovery, sort of lengthy uh, road back to economic health, what do you think is the biggest factor in, in driving that scenario? Is it health policy or is it economic and monetary policy? I guess another way of asking that question is whether or not economic and monetary policy can fully offset the impact of the coronavirus. Well, I do take the policy response as being very aggressive, both monetary, credit and fiscal, and that everything else equal is positive for making sure that this recession is only two quarters, Q1 and Q2, and then there is a recovery. But I think that there are many factors that lead me to essentially express the view that my baseline, say 60% probability is a U-shaped recovery, and I sign only a 20% probability to a V-shaped recovery of the economy. The markets is a different story. I think the main factors I would point out are that on the health side, we know there is going to be a second wave. The second wave could occur already in July and August depending on how fast we reopen, and there is a temptation to reopen too fast. Secondly, there'll be another second wave or third wave in the winter when we are not going to have yet a vaccine, and when the cold weather comes back, uh, we're going to have it. Again, how severe it's going to be, we don't know, but we we know there's not going to be a vaccine by then, and depending on how much we flatten the curve, it could be severe or less severe. But I think that the fundamental reason why I believe it's going to be you is that you have two critical agents in the economy, in the private sector, households and corporations, and both of them are going to be stressed. The household sector is going to be in a situation in which is effectively, you have millions of people that have lost jobs. Even when there is a reopening, many of them are not going to regain their jobs, or if they regain their jobs, they're going to be part-time jobs, informal workers, gig workers, contractors. So their income generation is going to be much weaker. So you have consumers that are, one, shell-shocked, two, they're still scared of the virus. Three, their income challenged. Four, their asset crashed. Five, they are burdened with a huge amount of debt, mortgages, auto loans, student loans, consumer loans, credit cards. And anybody sensible should be more precautionary in their consumption and saving behavior, right? There'll be a massive increase in uh, precautionary savings for any level of income. And your income is going to be certainly lower than before. So you have lower income, you spend less, you save more. Why do you save more? Because, you know, 40% of U.S. households, allegedly, have less than $400 of cash in the case of an emergency. So after what has happened with the risk of another shock coming from the corona, you losing your job, not regaining it, better safe rather than sorry. So I expect that the savings rate of the household sector is going to be sharply up. And the investment of the household sector, what's investment for household is purchases of homes is going to be sharply down. Who would you want to buy a home, you know, even with these lower mortgage rates and your credit score is going to be worse. So you have higher saving, you have lower investment for households. Same story for the corporate sector. 
the corporate sector, as we know, was highly leveraged, leverage ratio like we have not seen in the last 40 years for the corporate sector. This was an accident waiting to happen. And every corporate will have to survive, reduce leverage. How you survive uh, by reducing leverage? By cutting costs, labor costs and other costs. So you have to increase your saving rate and you have to cut on your capex, option value of waiting, right? There is glut of capacity. You don't know how recovery is going to be. So you're going to have an increase in savings of the corporate, a reduction of capex. So the financial balances of both households and corporates this is the difference between their savings and their investment. They're going to improve. They're going to improve because they have to save more and they have to cut spending on capex on residential. Uh, while that's individually rational, in equilibrium, higher saving and lower investment means a depressed economic recovery, even if the fiscal authority and even the monetary authority are doing monetary and fiscal stimulus. So you have one positive coming from the policy, but the deleveraging that has to occur in the private sector leads you to this thing. Now, during the global financial crisis, the households were highly leveraged and they had this deleveraging, but the corporates were not as leveraged. This time around, we had high leverage of corporates and high leverage of households. So both of them have to deleverage by increasing savings, reducing investment. That's a recipe for a U-shaped recovery. There are many other factors, but that's a key argument of why it's going to be a U rather than a V. And I think it makes a compelling argument. When you talk about sort of the quasi-behavioral ramifications of this, so households will have just watched their uh, incomes uh, vanish at a shocking speed, same with uh, corporate revenues. Are there other periods in the past, either specific uh, economic events in U.S. or global history, that show how sudden shocks to the economy leave lasting changes in uh, business or household uh, inclination to invest or spend? Well, the, the difference between this recession and all the other ones is that even the global financial crisis, even the Great Depression, were slow motion train wreck. It took three years right. for output to fall this much, for unemployment rate to go this up, for stock market to fall 50%, for credit spreads to rise you know, at uh, you know, double digit levels and so on and so on. This kind of a shock instead is like an asteroid hitting planet Earth and not just one country, but the entire world right. and shutting down economic activity. So we have never had this experiment. We've had experiments, of course, of isolated cases. There is a hurricane, you know, in Puerto Rico or in somewhere in the Caribbean or a major natural disaster. Of course, you have that shock limited to that particular, you know, region of the world or town or whatever. And you have those dynamics, of course, of a massive uh, shock that is economic and financial and otherwise. But this is something that's hit pretty much planet Earth. So it, it's very different. But even if it's different, you can make inferences intelligently based on economic behavior and the dynamic of what's happening to income, to jobs, and so on. They're going to lead you to understand what's the shape of the recovery. I mean, there was already after the global financial crisis, an example, a, a tendency for firms not to hire full-time workers with full benefits, right? Uh, those jobs were gradually going away. It was all gig workers, part-time workers, contractors, freelancers, hourly workers, and so on and so on. Given the shock that's occurred right now, we know that 26 million Americans have lost their jobs. Probably at the peak, is going to be more like 35 million people. Uh, these people are not going to get their jobs back. I mean, I live in New York City. Uh, take anybody who worked in, in a restaurant or in hospitality and so on. Even when you reopen a restaurant, uh, you'll be back in, a, in rent by three months, four months. 
you have to pay it back. They're not going to cancel it. Uh, you'll have to have every other table empty for security. And uh, uh, these restaurants live on a margin of, you know, 5 10%. There is no way. Half of the old restaurants in New York are going to be gone for good. Half of the retail stores in New York are going to be gone for good, even if there is a reopening of these things. Reopening means nothing. There was an article yesterday in the Financial Times saying that they reopened all the shops in Berlin. And by the way, in Germany, the hit to uh, income has been much less because we're not firing everybody. They have this system of resharing, right? So you have not had mass unemployment. So the stores are open and nobody's going there because everybody's scared and everybody's worried about their future. Who's going to buy a car? Who's going to buy a home? Who's going to take a vacation? Who's going to go on an airplane? Who's going to take a cruise? I mean, these are changes that regardless of whether you open or close a store or an airplane or a cruise ship are going to change behavior. The issue is not whether we reopen, but once we reopen, whether they're going to show up. In my view, most people are not going to show up. Mm. What does that imply for inflation? Because on the one hand, you have people who are probably saving more and spending less, as you put it. Um, but on the other hand, you have central banks who are sort of throwing the kitchen sink at everything right now. And uh, some people are even talking about debt monetization. So how do you see net-net inflation shaping up? Well, last November, before this crisis even was on the horizon, I wrote a long paper saying, if and when the next uh, recession will occur, monetary and fiscal policy is going to become even more unconventional. And I said, effectively, we're going to have a monetization of large fiscal deficits, what people call Otherwise, modern monetary theory, helicopter drop of money, or people's QE, or the new euphemism that people like Bernanke or Stan Fischer uses, coordination of monetary fiscal policy. So it was clear that once a recession occurs, policymakers cannot sit there doing nothing, pretending they don't have the policy bullets. And we've seen it. We've had now budget deficits in the U.S. that are going to be 20% of GDP. And the Fed is saying unlimited QE. And this morning, the BOJ is saying unlimited QE, and the ECB is not yet saying unlimited QE, but they're going to soon be at unlimited QE. So you'll have massive monetization of fiscal deficit. So we're going even more unconventional. Now, in the short run, this uh, shock is uh, recessionary and is leading to deflation because while there is a supply shock, the shock to aggregate demand is bigger, and there you have a massive slug in goods market, tons of capacity, machines that are not working, and tons of people tens of millions were not working. So that is deflationary in the short run. And therefore, monetizing fiscal deficit prevents, one, a economic depression, two, prevents a deflation from setting in. However, the point that I've made in that paper and is repeated now is that over time, I fear that the, one of the medium-term consequences of this crisis is going to be permanent negative supply shocks. We're going to have more deglobalization. We're going to have more decoupling between US and China. We have more balkanization of global supply chains because they're not safe if they're all concentrated on China. We'll have more fragmentation of the global economy. We have more populist parties in power who say, I'm going to protect my workers, my firms. So more protectionism, more tariffs, more restriction to trade in goods, in services, in capital, in labor, in technology, in data and information. That's a negative supply shock that over time reduces potential growth and reduces actual output. It's like the negative oil shocks that we had in the 1970s, 73, 79. Think of it as a negative supply shock that reduces potential growth and increases cost of production. 
Now, what happened in the 70s when we had the two oil shocks? We monetized them. Monetary policy was behind the curve, and we fiscalized them. But the extent, by the way, of those fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus was limited compared to today, where we're running budget deficits of 20% of GDP, and we're fully monetizing with QE. At that time, you were just behind the curve in terms of monetary policy. You're not at negative policy rates, let alone QE. So the extent of the monetary and fiscal stimulus is 10 orders of magnitude bigger than the 70s. Now, you throw monetized fiscal deficit in an economy where, over time, you have negative supply shocks, and then you end up with not staggered deflation, like today, stagnation and deflation, but you get with stagflation that occurred in the 70s where effectively when you monetize fiscal deficit with negative supply shock, you get inflation and recession over time. Now, this is not a story for 2020. It may not even be a story for 2021. But I do believe that these policies over the medium term are going to lead us back to stock deflation. And once you're in stock deflation, then you're in a nightmare right? because you have a negative growth and you have inflation. When you have stock deflation, recession and deflation, it's easy. You have to stimulate the economy to get you out of a recession and out of a deflation. So you need to do monetary fiscal stimulus. Once you have inflation together with economic stagnation, then you have a problem because you cannot use monetary policy if you care about inflation. So we're going to get there, but it's going to take two or three years. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So we've basically seen for decades now, arguably since the very early 80s and uh, Volcker era, the sort of gradual opening up of uh, the global economy, expanding supply, uh, liberalizing policy, etc. And this is the moment to some that it reverses all those trends about 40 years ago. Uh, to some extent, what this this virus and the aftermath will will finally be the reversal of that, in your view. Well, the reversal started to occur after the global financial crisis because the era of hyper-globalization started either in 1979 when Deng Xiaoping opened up China or 1989 when, of course, the Berlin Wall collapsed and the Iron Curtain collapsed and you know, the opening up of Russia, Soviet Union and Eastern Central Europe. So we had four decades of globalization, more trading goods in services, in capital, in labor, technology, data, information, you name it. Uh, we reached peak globalization, in my view, already 10 years ago, because after the global financial crisis, there was a slowdown of global trade. There was the beginning of protectionist policies or inward-oriented policies. So peak globalization probably was already 10 years ago, but certainly these crises implies much more deglobalization, much more decoupling between U.S. and China. The Cold War is going to become colder. The Thucydides trap is going to get worse. We'll have a total balkanization of global supply chains, first in technology, then in manufacturing, then in services. You know, 
you cannot rely anymore on China. You have to reshore. And by the way, if you reshore economic activity, you're not going to create jobs because you're reshoring economic activity from places where costs are low, say China and Asia, to places where labor costs are high. So it's going to lead either to use more gig workers and pay them nothing or to use machines. So the process of automation and robotization is going to accelerate. So we'll have more activity in the U.S. It's going to help capital. It's going to still screw labor like it has for the last decades. So these trends are going to get worse, but certainly it's a world in which we'll have more restriction to everything. Uh, and even supply of safe, supply chains of food are going to be disrupted globally because every country says, hey, I want to keep my food for myself in case coronavirus comes back. We'll have restriction to exportation of food. Of course, we'll have restriction to exportation of pharma products and medical equipment. Everybody is going to want to keep it for themselves. And we, of course, have given the tech war between U.S. and China. The entire tech sector is going to decouple and we'll have a splinter net and we'll have two completely systems for tech and internet and 5G and you name it. Uh, going ahead. So there'll be massive balkanization of the global economy. That's a massive negative supply shock that permanently reduces potential growth and is eventually, given the monetary fiscal policy, stagflationary over time. Mm. So one of the things that always strikes me whenever I read your work or listen to you talk on, on TV or, or the radio or podcasts like this um, is your sort of um, specificity of your forecasts, as well as your confidence in making them. I'm just wondering, in the current situation, is there anything that surprised you or that you weren't expecting to happen? Well, initially, of course, the free fall in economic activity take, took even me by surprise. You know, at the beginning was not a, a U, was not a V, was not even an L, was a I. Literally free fall, the collapse of output, employment, consumption, investment, export, imports, pretty much every component of agri-demand and agri-supply was like a free fall. And, you know, even Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and Goldman Sachs now saying in Q2, the contraction of output uh, in U.S., for example, at the annual rate is going to be between 35 and 40 percent at the annual rate, right? So, so everybody was taken one by the free fall because we're not seeing a shock of this sort, a sudden stop where everything shuts down in any typical financial crisis or economic crisis, you have a, you know, a buildup of the economic downturn, but it's slow and gradual. As I said, what happened in the past, even in the Great Depression in three years or during the global financial crisis, this time around has occurred in three, three weeks. The other aspect that has been partially surprising, but not totally surprising to me, has been the policy response. But as I said, I wrote last November, that when the next recession is going to occur, we're not going to do the typical zero rate, negative rates, a little bit of QE, a little bit of credit easing, a little bit of forward guidance. We're going to go full Monty on helicopter drop of money. And by the way, what's the difference between having helicopter drop of money and full direct monetization of fiscal deficits and having large deficits plus QE? The only difference between the two is when you do QE, you buy the bonds in the secondary market. Well, when you do direct monetization, you're buying them in the primary market, right? But that's a fig leaf. The impact on long rates and on financial condition is exactly the same. Who cares whether you're buying the bonds, uh, you know, directly from the government or the government issues them and a week later, literally, the Fed purchases bonds at the rate of 100, 200 billion per week. It's just the same thing. 
just a fig leaf to say it's not direct monetization. It is direct monetization. You just wait a week rather than waiting uh, one hour. It's just the same thing, right? Let's call some, they call it euphemistically coordination of monetary and fiscal policy. It's a joke. It's not coordination of monetary and fiscal policy. It's fiscal dominance, and the central bank has no option, given a deficit of 20% of GDP, but fully to monetize it. Because if they were not monetizing them, you know, 10-year treasuries would not be at 0.6. They would be at 2 3%. That would happen. So they have no option with a deficit of 20% of GDP to fully buy the entire stock of new bonds issued by the Treasury. That's what's happening in the US. That's what's happening in Japan. That's what's happening in Europe. That's what's happening in all advanced economies. Now, emerging markets is a different story. In emerging markets, you monetize fiscal deficit. To this extent, you end up in hyperinflation, like uh, Zimbabwe, like Argentina, like Venezuela. Luckily, in advanced economies, we have some modicum of policy credibility left, and we're not going to end up into high inflation or hyperinflation. But over the next few years, we may see inflation rise from the current very low levels to higher levels. That can happen in the presence of deglobalization and the supply shocks. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about the sort of pre-crisis era. You mentioned uh, corporate leverage was high, household leverage as well. You know, after the last, after the great financial crisis, and you look back at 2005, 2006, it's obvious all kinds of risks exposed, uh, related to housing. Was the economy inherently fragile pre-crisis? I mean, we talk about this incredible crash, the speed of which caught literally everyone by surprise. Does that mean that the economy must have had weak foundations going into this? Or is it just like we turned off the economy due to a public health risk and this is what was going to happen? How much does the current crisis sort of indict the stability of the pre-crisis economy? Well, there were plenty of fragilities uh, even before this crisis occurred. You know, after the global financial crisis, in spite of the talk about the great deleveraging, very little deleveraging occurred because, of course, as we know, public deficits and debt rose significantly, both in advanced economies and emerging markets, and also private debts remain high or they increased. In the case of the U.S., there was partial deleveraging of the household sector, but the deleveraging did not occur through massive increase in saving. It occurred only because lots of people defaulted on their mortgages and personal loans, and eventually their debt were reduced. But there was a massive releveraging of the corporate sector, right? Uh, whether it was, uh, you know, CLOs, leveraged loans, uh, uh, massive issuance of uh, junk bonds, uh, a trillion dollar of fallen angels in uh, high grade. They're not going to be downgraded. Uh, all these share buybacks that implied uh, a complete change in the capital structure of most firms with less equity and more capital as a way of boosting earnings per share and the valuation. So the levels of corporate debt, and people had been writing it for the last year, even the Fed recently was saying we're worried about the buildup of corporate debt. So this was an accident waiting to happen because the corporate were leveraged like never before in history. You know, my colleague Ed Altman, who's an expert of corporate default, had been reading about years about the buildup of corporate debt, and lots of other people did. And in the case of the housing sector, the debt levels were not much lower. They did not increase, but they were remain high. What changed was that during the last decade, private and public debts were higher. Domestic and foreign debts were higher. In the private sector, debts of households, of corporates, even of the shadow banking system were higher. 
But given near zero policy rates and given very low long rates, that servicing ratios were very low, right? That ratio were not low. Uh, what made the system sustainable was that we had zero rates, if not negative, and we had long rates that were extremely low all over the world in advanced economies. And therefore, there was a false sense of security because that servicing ratio were at historical low. But, you know, once a crisis occurs and credit spreads blow up, even if uh, safe assets like treasury, goods, and JGBs can go even lower, if the spreads for uh, corporate debt or household or credit cards or RMBSs or you name it go through the roof, then you can have a debt crisis even with the yield on safe bonds being close to zero, if not negative, because it's credit spreads that are blowing up. And that's what is happening right now. Now, this time around, one of the new things is happening is that not only you had a V-shaped recovery of U.S. equity, the other V-shaped recovery has occurred for developed market spread products, RMBSs, money bonds, high yield, high grade, and so on. What explains it? It explains it, the fact that the Fed, the ECB, and now the BOJ have decided to very aggressively buy not just uh, uh, government bonds, but also to buy corporate bonds. Now, the BOJ and the ECB were already buying for the last few years corporate bonds, but say the BOJ today announced they're going to triple the amount of corporate bonds and commercial paper they're buying. But for the Fed, is a new to buy corporate bonds. And as long as they're buying a high grade, investment grade, it was okay. But once they decided to go and buy even fallen angels that have been downgraded from triple B minus to somewhere in the double B range, uh, and when they decided to buy even high-yield FTFs, the, the, the Fed is going into totally uncharted and dangerous territory because you're really buying stuff that is highly risky, first of all, and you're creating a huge amount of moral hazard and you're not allowing the necessary deleveraging that has to occur among leveraged firms. They're going to kick the can down the road if you're aggressively trying to narrow the spreads, especially for high yield. So to me, that's a mistake. Is again, making sure that zombie companies, zombie financial institutions, zombie households are going to stay alive on life support when they should be allowed to default and restructure and have both financial and operational restructuring. So we're going to pay the price for that particular policy. I think that everything else that the Fed is doing may be right, but moving into the space of buying highly risky junk bonds, I think it's crazy. It's utterly crazy. Mm -hmm. Just on the policy question, is that the one thing that you would do differently if, if you were in charge of the policy response here? So, for instance, if you were, you know, either in the U.S. administration or chairman of the Fed or something like that, what would you be doing in response to the economic downturn that we're seeing? Well, as I said, uh, the idea that you're going to run large budget deficit, that you're going to monetize them, it's the right response in the short run. I worry about the hovering of uh, the balance sheet of central banks, and they're not going to be able to run them down uh, because if they run them down, there's a debt crisis. Think of it. Even the Fed started quantitative tightening uh, in 2017, but in the fourth quarter of 2018, when you had just a minor blip, you know, stock market went down 20%, big deal in Q4 after going up 200%. By January 1st, Powell said, okay, I was kidding. I'm not going to continue QT, and I'm not going to raise rates until 325. I'm going to stop. And then three months later, he said, okay, we're going to start 
cutting rates and we're going to start doing new repos and new open market operation to increase the balance sheet. So well before even this crisis occurred, the Fed realized we cannot run down the balance sheet. They tried to do it, then the market shock in Q4 of 18 and what happened last year led them to just change and completely increase the balance sheet even before this crisis occurred. And now that the crisis occurred, the balance sheet is going to not double, but probably triple. And there's not even a sense of whether we're going to start, when we're going to even start raising policy rates above zero, let alone run down the balance sheet. In the case of Europe, the uh, quantitative tightening never started. They stopped QE, and now they've resumed it. In the case of Japan, they never stopped their QE. The QE always continued, and now they're ramping it up to infinite amount, right? Whatever it takes, like the Fed has done. So these balance sheets are never going to go down. And eventually, that type of a financial overhang initially leads to asset inflation and asset bubbles. Then eventually, it leads also to goods inflation. Did not happen during the last decade because during the last decade, we had positive supply shocks. We had continuation of globalization and technology. Uh, in the next decade, we'll have reversal of globalization. And there'll be even restriction to what technology can do, because while technology is going to continue to grow, there'll be massive restriction to the diffusion of technology because of national security. Technology, the tech sector is going to become a critical component of the national security industrial complex, and it's going to be restricted. So we'll have two major forces that are going to lead to negative supply shocks rather than positive one. At the time, we're doing monetization and fiscalization of deficit in an order of magnitude that is three or four times bigger than what we did after the global financial crisis. That eventually leads to asset and credit bubbles, and then a bust and crash, and it leads even to stagflation over time. Again, it's not a prediction for this year or next year, but for the medium term, my view, by the way, is that this decade, there'll be a coming global depression. This is not a short-term prediction for 2020, but I believe there are at least 10 forces that are going to lead to the coming Great Depression of the 2020s. Not 2020, 2020s. The coming decade, there'll be a global depression in the global economy because there are forces and trends and risks and imbalances that were created by the global financial crisis. They were never resolved, and now they're going to come this time around with a vengeance. And all of these 10 negative trends are being exacerbated by the coronavirus crisis. I don't know if I have time to discuss all of them. I'm writing a new book about the subject, about the coming depression of the 2020s, but uh, there is essentially 10 global forces that are gonna lead us to a great depression in the next decade. That's my view. So in the short run, we avoid that great depression. This year, my baseline is a U-shaped recovery. It's not a depression. But over time, I believe we're going to face a great depression. Nurio, you're certainly living up to your uh, Dr. Doom moniker there. But I have one final question. So prior to the crisis, one good thing is that we truly had something that resembled some wage growth. We had very low unemployment. The spread between, uh, say, the unemployment in this country among uh, educated white people versus minority group, different minority groups had started to come in genuinely positive things that were coming about through the long expansion obliterated overnight. What would be a model towards getting back to that point that would be more sustainable in your view? If what we saw was all these sort of un, um, unresolved imbalances, how can we get 
how can we return to what seemed like some very positive societal trends in a way that doesn't involve uh, endless bubbles? Well, you know, I will take partial issue with your characterization of how well was the situation of labor, because, you know, the share of labor had been falling for a decade and was falling. The share of uh, profits was rising in GDP. That's why you had outsized returns. And uh, yes, people had jobs, but most of those jobs were low wages. Yeah, wage growth was picking up slightly, but was not uh, really robust. And many people had jobs that had essentially no benefits because many of them became gig workers or part-time workers or contractors or freelancers or hourly workers and so on and so on. You know, 40% of Americans did not have more than $400 of savings in case of an emergency. So those people that were left behind, and uh, say Trump was talking about an American carnage when he was elected, I think for most people, there is still an American carnage. You know, there are 80,000 people today, every year in the US, that die from an opioid overdose. And that number has not fallen, has fallen by an epsilon. Why do they die of this stuff? Because they are totally socially, economically desperate. That's what leads to the opioid epidemic. You're looking at any measure of social kind of success or whatever not, uh, is still, is, it is an American carnage. People have jobs, but they are, you know, the hamburger flipping jobs, the low-wage jobs, the temporary jobs that have no benefits. Having millions of young millennials having to do three or four times for different gig jobs and not being paid enough and not having any benefits is no, is no kind of panacea of any sort. So I do believe that actually the situation for labor was extremely fragile. Of course, after a decade of a recovery, you had unemployment rate gone from 10% to 3.5. We created 22 million jobs. But guess what? In four weeks, the entire jobs that have been created in 10 years, they're gone. 26 million, and the peak is going to be 35. And ask yourself, if it took a decade, 10 years of an anemic recovery, with something happening for creating 22 million jobs, how many years is going to take us to essentially reduce the unemployment rate from 36 million new people without jobs back to normal? It's going to take a decade. It's going to take two decades. What's going to take? So honestly, labor is screwed. Was always screwed. Is now screwed more than before, and it's going to be a nightmare. Okay. Well, on that um, <laughs> that optimistic note, uh, I think we're going to leave it there. But Nouriel, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I, I know you call yourself a doctor realist, but uh, you're painting a pretty uh, pretty depressing picture of uh, the future. But thank you. We appreciate it. I'm, I hope I'm wrong. I feel I'm going to be right. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Thanks, Nouriel. That was great. Thank you. So, Joe, I'm just trying to think all the uh, all the ground we just covered. We had a Great Depression, food shortages, the end of globalization, a new Cold War, uh, stagflation. I could go on, but like pretty much yeah. every bad scenario uh, was touched upon. So that was fun. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like, I knew, you know, when I set it up. The intro, or when we were talking, I was like, oh, they call him Dr. Doom, but I'm not sure if he really uh, is a Dr. Doom. Maybe mm. that was just sort of like a thing people called him. But whew, he is very negative. Like, he really yeah. is. But, and the, you know what the interesting thing is? Is that, um, 
you know, there's a lot of like there's sort of like perma bear uh, types out there. Like there's other people. In fact, I think there's like ten people with the nickname Doctor Doom. But a lot of them <laughs> are like these sort of like hardcore gold types. He's not really one of them so much. No, He's no, actually. Negative. Yeah, we should have asked him. I, I guess we should have asked him where he'd be putting his money at this point in time. I would have been yeah. interested in that. But but it was really fascinating to hear him talk about a permanent behavioral change uh, for yeah. people and consumers. Well, it's also sort of interesting, too, because we there is a lot of talk about permanent behavioral change. And it's worth sort of disentangling what is the permanent behavioral change due to the health crisis? So, okay, mm. maybe some people are going to avoid different kinds of uh, leisure or they're, you know, they're going to want more space between them and the next person at a restaurant versus the permanent behavioral change that results from seeing your income vanish in a minute or seeing yeah. your revenue vanish in a minute. So it'll be interesting because there's really two sorts of things that are simultaneously unprecedented in this crisis that could leave lasting scars. Yeah, I guess we'll have to have uh, Rubini on in, uh, well, a couple years to uh, to talk about those changes and also see whether or not that uh, that stagflation idea has come to fruition. The, the stagflation thing is particularly interesting because you do get more people who had never really been believers in the inflation thesis starting to come around essentially because of some version of the permanent change of the supply global trade landscape that he described. It feels like if there is going to be a moment where some of the inflation predictions could start to come to fruition, it's that combination of deglobalization and aggressive stimulus that could theoretically do it. Yeah, definitely an interesting one to watch. All right. Uh, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. Well, this has been another uh, depressing episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Uh, and I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Nuriel Rubini. He's at Nuriel. Be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today, as well as all the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.